If you will turn with me to Acts chapter 26, we're, we're getting back to the final three chapters of Acts. We're going to cover one of those today. And uh, if you uh, haven't been with us for a little bit, uh, we've been going through the book of Acts. And, uh, and I want to, just before I read it, kind of bring you up to speed. Uh, the, Acts, the book of Acts is all, of course, about the, the beginning of the church. It was really written by Luke to give an account of Christianity and to verify the promised Holy Spirit and to explain his coming, uh, to give an explanation also of the disciples' remarkable transformation from these kind of uh, uh, cowardly men who were running away uh, from even little servant girls before Christ's uh, crucifixion, uh, to these very courageous, remarkably bold men uh, after the day of Pentecost, and then to justify the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church, Uh, as well as to uh, explain the birth and growth of the church and then to bridge the gap between the gospels and all the epistles because Acts is that bridge that explains to us how it all got started with the church. And then the last thing I want to mention to you about uh, about the purpose for the book of Acts is simply uh, many scholars and and, uh, Bible teachers believe that Theophilus, who was the recipient of of both of Luke's letters, uh, it was designed to be a a trial brief in preparation for Theophilus, who was in Rome, who would be presenting Paul's case before Caesar. And so it it gives some explanation why we've got chapter after chapter after chapter of Paul's trial. You know, it's like, this thing, is it ever going to end? You know, it starts in chapter 23, and okay, that's good. And then 24, and then 25, and 26. It's going to go all the way to the end. And the thing that makes sense of all of this is that that, uh, Luke is giving this information for the purpose of preparing Theophilus to be, to be a, a defense attorney for the Apostle Paul. And so, in essence, what's happened is that in chapter 23 in the, in the city of Ephesus, Paul was accused of having defiled the temple and, and up, uh, causing uprisings and riots, both of which were untrue, both were slanderous charges, but he's still trying to answer these charges. And so it brings us to the text in chapter 26, where he's now brought before King Agrippa, to make a defense for himself and an explanation of the events that have occurred prior to this chapter that we're going to be looking at. And so we pick it up in chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand, began to speak his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any one of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. 
Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing all around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision of heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, he shouted. Your great learning has driven you insane. I'm not insane, Most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with all these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. The king rose and with them the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. They left the room and while talking with one another, they said, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Father, we pray as we study this text this morning that you would bless our time. God, that you would anoint it. Holy Spirit, I, I come uh, Sunday by Sunday with just such a, a deep awareness of my inadequacy to properly meet the need and of the people here, of these men and women that love you and my terrible inadequacy apart from Christ and your spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, I'm just totally dependent upon you to fill me and to give me the right words, to share your heart, to not only communicate the thoughts and ideas, but also the very heart of God to your people this morning. And so I'm looking to you and I'm crying out. We're looking to you and crying out. Would you speak to us today, to all of us, myself included, and prompt us to move, to respond, to listen, to apply, and to live this adventurous, 
wonderful journey of Christianity that you've called us to, the abundant life. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. amen. In this text, we, we really have three different types of people. In fact, I've titled the text, Three Men, Two Destinies. We've got three particular individuals that are highlighted. We have a lot more people than that, really, in the text. Uh, we possibly have hundreds that are gathered for this uh, kind of informal trial. And uh, we've got, certainly, we've got Festus, we've got Agrippa, we've got Bernice, we've got Paul. And then we've got a retinue of all the centurions that are under Agrippa's authority and under Festus's authority. Uh, we've got the servants. We've got people just crowded into the, into the place. I'm imagining it's a number of people just about like this, maybe even a few more. There's a lot of people there. But there are three particular people that are brought out in the text who, are, who have speaking parts, so to speak, in this particular passage of Scripture. And it's Paul, it's Festus, and it's Agrippa. And each one of those men represent three types of people uh, that you can find really in any group of people, in any country, in any place, in any generation. The first is represented by Paul, a follower of Jesus Christ. The next is represented by Agrippa, who has an openness and an, and an interest in the things of the kingdom of God, but has not yet made a commitment to God. And then you have Festus, who is kind of just a, he's an antichrist type of figure, a Christ-rejecting antagonist to the gospel of God. And so we have those three people in this text, but the truth is, is that at the end of the day, you can have as many people as you want, you can have as many cultures as you want, as many nationalities as you want, as many religions as you want, but there are only two destinies for every man and every woman and every child on the planet. And it's either heaven or hell. That's as simple as it gets. And a lot of people don't like to talk about that uh, destiny. They don't mind talking about heaven, but they don't really, they're not really comfortable talking about hell, despite the fact that Jesus spoke about hell more than any other topic. Why? It's not because he liked talking about the topic and it was just fascinating for him. It's that he was pleading with people and warning them that that is not his plan for them to be there. His plan is that they would have life and life eternal. But at the end of the day, for every man and woman, there is one of two destinies. It's either heaven or hell. And as we go through this text this morning, I want you to think about something that's been kind of going through my mind a lot this week as I prepared for this message. And that's that as I, as I walk around town, as I'm doing my business, as I'm banking, as I'm, you know, at the, at the you know, store, or as I'm at the beach, as I'm surfing, as I'm fishing, whatever I'm doing, every person I come across, every person I come in contact with, every person I talk to on the phone, it's this message, heaven or hell, heaven or hell, heaven or hell. That's the destiny. And I've been really convicted this week because a lot of times when I see people, I'm just thinking, hey, nice people, you know? And I'm thinking, wow, it's, I, I, you know, I enjoy talking to you or this or that or the other thing. Nothing's wrong with any of that. But, but when I don't have that perspective that Paul had or that God has or that the word of God has, I, I'm not nearly as intense in my prayer life for people's salvation. I, I'm not thinking about opportunities to share my faith in the midst of the conversation. I'm not talking about hammering people. I'm talking about just loving them enough to realize that there's a destiny that every man and woman has to face. And it's either heaven or it's hell. And I want them in heaven. I want my family there. I want my friends there. I want my neighbors there. I want every person on this island there. I want people on the mainland there. I'd love to have the whole world there. Now the Bible tells us that's not going to happen. But that, that's, that's a growing heart that I've got and a growing heart I see happening in this church and it's so thrilling. 
Every week, outside of our church, in the community, people are hearing the gospel. And you guys are doing it. And people are sharing with me the influence that you're having. I I haven't even really gotten started in the text, but I got to tell you a little story that happened to me just the other day. I'm down at the bank and I'm just doing my banking and I'm, 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 uh, I'm there and I'm, you know, I'm actually having to get a cashier's check uh, for a payment I need to make. And so this ca- I'm working out the cashier's check and, and there's a fee for it, you know, and it's like eight bucks. And I, you know, evidently it's, if you know people, you can kind of, you know, say, hey, do I have to pay the fee? And they'll say, oh, oh no, okay, you don't have to pay the fee. So anyway, uh, I'm talking to one of the, the, the gals there and the manager comes over and she, she says, aren't you, don't you go to Calvary Chapel? And, and I said, yeah, I do. And she says, yeah, I came to Easter service and I've come for a few weeks and her name is Meredith, I believe. Just a delightful person and so nice and kind and, and helpful. And then the guy standing next to me says, yeah, you go to that church over there, don't you? I got some friends that go there. They've been inviting me to church. And I said, well, you should come. And then another person, one of the other tellers said, yeah, I have some friends that go there. And I just want you to know that, that the influence and the fragrance of Christ just in your daily life is having an enormous impact on people and God is using you in really significant ways. And I can't explain it to you. I don't understand it. But God is on the move. He's doing something and there's an openness. I don't know if you guys are seeing it, but there's a new openness that I have not seen here before on this island. It's not that people were completely close to the gospel, but I'm seeing a new hunger and and a new desire on the heart of people to listen to the gospel and to hear your story. And so I want to encourage you that when we see people, we need to have God's perspective. Yes, they're wonderful people. They have a wonderful family, great kids, a job, and all these things. But at the end of the day, it's heaven or hell for every human being. And that perspective has helped me enormously to pray and to share and to be a little bit more bold in, uh, in communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at these three men and their lives, I think we're going to learn some lessons along the way. But it begins in verse 1 and 2 with Paul just communicating how grateful he was to be able to make his defense before Agrippa. Now, keep in mind that Agrippa's great-grandfather was the one that tried to kill baby Jesus. His grandfather was the one that beheaded John the Baptist. And his father is the one that martyred, martyred James. So this is not exactly, you know, like a friendly lineage to Christianity. And Paul is saying, the word he uses is markarios in the Greek, which means supremely blessed and and excited. I'm thinking, what is he thinking, you know? So I'm I'm supremely blessed to be able to make my defense before you. But that's what he said. Why? Because, well, he wanted to make his defense, but if you noticed in the text, you know, what what was supposed to be a defense for, for Paul became a defense for the gospel, he, he doesn't even really say much about himself or about, you know, how this is unfair and how I've been slandered or anything like that. He, his main objective is not even his own protection or own deliverance, but it's the delivery of the message of Jesus Christ to this assembly that is gathered uh, in, this, in this forum for his uh, kind of a pseudo trial. And so he acknowledges that Agrippa is well acquainted with the, with the Jewish customs, with the temple worship and the law, the scriptures, uh, the traditions, the culture, something that Festus was very unfamiliar with. And he was also familiar, the text tells us, with all the Jewish controversies. It was like, I can understand him being familiar with the traditions. But to be familiar with all the Jewish controversies is like even bigger, you know? Because even to this day, the Jewish people have, they just love controversy. Religious controversy, there's so much controversy about, about Christ, the Messiah. There's controversy about the temple and the temple mount. There's controversy about Gaza. There's controversy about their politics 
and how, you know, the, the Hamas should be handled. There's controversy everywhere. But the Bible says that Agrippa was very familiar not only with all the aspects of Judaism, but also all the controversies, political and otherwise, related to Judaism. And so very respectfully, Paul addresses him. And, and I want to just make a brief point here because if there was ever a group of people that a man following Christ could have felt justified in rejecting their authority, it was these guys. And we'll talk more about them in a few minutes. But in essence, Festus was corrupt. He was immoral, unethical. He was uh, a, a guy that was taking bribes under the table. We know a lot about his history, and, and he ended up not staying in power very long. But this guy was totally corrupt, back scratcher, uh, thief, dishonorable guy, and a terrible leader. And, and, and Paul is having to stand before this guy and be tried by him. And then you've got Agrippa, who is in an adulterous relationship with Bernice, uh, is, is knowledgeable about all these things, is actually has a Jewish lineage, and has rejected it and yet is very familiar with all the prophecies and everything that has to do with Judaism. And so, in essence, what's happening is that Paul is being tried by these guys that, don't, that can't hold a candle to his ethical level or to his moral commitments. Have you ever been in a position like that? Where somebody was over you and, and having to give you instruction or correction or rebuke or writing you up for something, and you're thinking to yourself, what is happening here? This guy's, I should be writing this guy up, you know? But here's Paul. And he's having to make a defense for himself. But he's not angry. He's not vindictive. He's not yelling. He's not being disrespectful. In fact, he's calling these guys most excellent, whatever their name is, Festus, Agrippa. He's calm. He's relaxed. He's doing all the things that these kings should be doing in light of their position, but are failing to do. But Paul is responding in a very honorable way. 1 Peter reminds me of, um, of the same concept in chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, where Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. You know, one of the... One of the things that, that uh, I want to stop on just for a moment here as it relates to application of Paul's modeling here is that Rome was corrupt. Rome was, was really antichrist in many ways. Rome was counter to the purposes of God. And yet Jesus said, render to Caesar what Caesar's. They paid taxes. They honored the, 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 uh, the kingdom. They honored the emperor. They didn't worship him but they respected that authority as having come from God. And here's where it all comes home, and it's gonna sting a little bit maybe, but there, there are authorities in our lives as well. Uh, a few of the, th the authorities that we have are our parents if we're younger. Uh, another authority is the police force on the island. Another authority is the courts. Another authority is, is uh, the tax department. I'm sorry to say it, I know, we're right around the corner here. Uh, we have a lot of authorities in our life and there, there are parts of us, if you're like me, there are parts of me that say, I don't want to be under that authority. I don't like those rules. I'll be under this one and that one and the other one, but not this one. And we kind of pick and choose. We cherry pick the ones that we want to be under and the ones that we don't want to be under, we come, we come up with a very um, uh, elaborate mechanism and, and strategy whereby we don't have to respond to that authority because they're not worthy of our respect. 
Well, I want to tell you something. There's no human authority that's absolutely worthy of our respect. There never will be. Only God is worthy of that absolute honor and respect because only God is perfect. But God has called us like Paul with your job. You know, some, a lot of you have employers. Many of you have your own businesses. But if you, have your own, if you, if you work for someone else, um, there's this, this desire and this command in Scripture repeatedly in Colossians and Ephesians and the book of Romans that we submit ourselves to those authorities. And not just to the ones that are nice and fair, but even to the ones that are unfair and unkind. And, and that's what we find happening here. When, when a person who claims the name of Christ refuses to submit and becomes rebellious or antagonistic to a boss or to a, to a parent or to the government or to a police officer or to a judge or whatever it might be, the result is a dishonoring of the name of Christ. That's what happens. And people on this island, they watch all this stuff. You know, I, I'm, I'm, you know one of the things about, uh, about the local community, they're never gonna come up to you if you fail and say, you know, you claim to be a Christian. They won't ever do that. They'll just put it in their mind and say, unethical, no authenticity. I've met a lot of those people before. But the ones that are actually living the life, they're the ones that say, where do you go to church? How can, you know, I I see you have a good marriage. How do you do that, you know? Or I know some friends that go to your church or whatever, or the church. And, And suddenly people are talking to us. I just want to share this because one of the things that can, can do some tremendous and significant damage to the gospel of Christ, we're speaking at, at one time trying to win our friends to Christ and then simultaneously they see us rebelling against authority in our life that God has placed there. It's difficult to submit to authority. But the Bible says very clearly in Romans 13 that all these authorities that God has placed in our life have been placed there by him. Whether we appreciate them, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, whether they're even antichrist. God is the one that appoints people to these positions for his own divine and eternal purposes. And our job and our responsibility is is to treat these people with respect and honor, not because of their moral values or qualities, but because of God's appointing them to that position. It's the same in a husband-wife relationship, same in the parent-child relationship. And so I want to really encourage you, if you're struggling in this area, this is as much a part of your testimony as, as the words of the gospel. It's how you live and how you surrender and how you honor God, even in those difficult situations. And I don't think very many of us can match or ever will match the challenge of Paul before guys like Agrippa and Festus where his life is on the line. And yet he still responds with... Uh, gentleness and respect and honor. And he begged Agrippa to listen to him patiently. And he begins to review his history in verse four and five and really highlighting his credentials as a card-carrying member of Judaism. And he's basically saying, hey, I'm, I'm with you guys, 100%. I lived according to the strictest sect of Judaism. He, he claimed to live as a Pharisee, which of course we have all that evidence in Philippians 3 and also Acts 22. And he identified the true charges against him in verses six through eight, not as rioting or defiling of a temple, but simply of the hope that he had in God related to the promise of God. What God had promised was the issue. God had promised the the forefathers something. He promised Abraham something. And it's found in Genesis 12. And he said, I'm going to bless you, Abram. And all the nations on the earth, including the Gentiles, will be blessed because of you. And that, that, that uh, word is reaffirmed in, in Acts 3 when, when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost and he says the same thing. He says, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant of God made with your fathers when he said to Abraham, 
through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. This is the promise. So Paul is saying, I am on trial, not for any of these other superfluous issues that are slanderous and untrue. I'm on trial because of the hope of God in Christ. And then he gets to the, to the, to the very center, the centerpiece of what the real issue is. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the problem. That's what the Jews were so upset about. All these other issues were, were red herrings to try to get him in trouble because they, they knew they couldn't bring him to trial to Rome because he believed in the resurrection. And so they brought up these other issues. So this is the watershed issue. This is the centerpiece of Christianity. You know, most of us have thought that the cross was the centerpiece of Christianity. And I'm not challenging that, but I'm saying simultaneously that the cross without the resurrection is meaningless. The cross without the resurrection is powerless. The cross without the resurrection doesn't have any value to us or the world, period. Paul himself said, we're most to be pitied if Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead. Even our faith is worthless. None of it has any meaning. Without the resurrection, we have no hope of a future. Without the resurrection, we have no Holy Spirit. Without the resurrection, we have no power to live the Christian life. Without the resurrection, we, we, we have nothing to say. And so, yes, the cross is vital. It's the basis upon which a man or woman is forgiven of their sin. Christ taking upon himself the sins of the world. But it was the resurrection that was God's exclamation point. It was the resurrection that made all the difference. It's the resurrection that makes Christianity what it is. The power of God to raise not only his son, but those that would follow in his steps. And so it's for this resurrection that, that Paul says that he is being tried. In verse 9 through 11, he begins to confess his own initial response to Christianity. You know, that's one of the things that I really love about the Bible and I love about Paul and I love about the other writers is that generally when we tell stories, we, we don't, you know, start off or, or lead in with some, you know, horrendous story about how awful we are, right? You know, I mean, if we're telling a story about the wave that we caught, you know, we're, 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 we talk about the barrel. We don't talk about the one where just we look like a complete idiot, fell off the front of our board, smacked our face in the thing, went over, broke the leash, broke, board broke in half. You know, we don't tell those stories. We're telling the ones, I was in there, it was just roping. I it was, must have been going for 15 or 20 seconds, you know, and it was really about maybe six, you know, but we got, we tell them these stories and the fish were this big, you know, but they, in the story, they're this big. I don't care what it is. We have this tendency to kind of expand a little bit on what, what really happened. But in the Bible, Paul just lays it out and he says, you know, I need to tell you, I, I, I had the same response to the gospel that you're having. He says, I was convinced that I ought to oppose the name of Jesus. He said, I put many of these saints in prison, he said, when, they, when the vote was cast against them for death, my vote went in as a member of the Sanhedrin for death. He chased them around from synagogue to synagogue to punish them, and he tried to force them to blaspheme, and he went to foreign cities to persecute them. You know, there's something very, I don't know, endearing and, and heart-opening when, when a person is really honest about their life. That's one of the things I so appreciated about um, Bobby's testimony and Kathy Bueno's testimony this last week uh, on Easter. It was just like, man, you get there's a, a, there's a beautiful contrast between what they were and the life that they were living and where they are now. And it's all because of Christ. 
And, and what would a testimony be like if it was like, yeah, I was really perfect then and well, I'm just got the, the bows on the cake now on the, you know, it's on the package and aren't I wonderful? You know, you can be like me and they're thinking, no, I can't be like you because I'm not, I'm not perfect and I've got all kinds of problems. My life is a mess. And so when I hear Paul's words and his honesty, I'm just thinking I can really relate to this guy. I've gotten it wrong so many times in my life. I've been on the wrong path, on the wrong track on a lot of things, but God, that's my favorite two words in the whole Bible, but God. <laughs> I love that. You know, this is what you were, but God. This is what you used to do, but God. This is, this is the destiny you had, but God. I just like him. <laughs> I think they're a great a little conjunction there and a, and a transition into what God can do. And so now Paul, having kind of laid out the person he was, now he lays out his testimony. This is basically a classic testimony. Do you know what a testimony has? It has what you were like before you came to Christ and then it has your conversion story. That's what Paul is leading into right now. And then it tells you what's next and what God has done since. And Paul has all those components in his, uh, in his testimony here. So he begins to recount his conversion on the Damascus Road. And, uh, and we've covered that twice before already in Acts 9 and 22. So I'm not gonna go over that all again. Uh, but there are some details uh, in this particular text that we've got, which is the fullest and most detailed account that we have of this Damascus Road experience in this particular text that I want to talk about. Because it says in verse 16 that Jesus appointed him at this encounter on this Damascus Road through Ananias to be a servant and a witness of what he has seen of Christ and also of what he would be shown. And this is exactly what, what John says as an epistle in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 3. He says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. That's what the gospel is. You don't have to get a Bible degree to share the Lord with people. You don't have to, you really don't even have to know very much at all except be a Christian. In fact, I even know some people that shared the gospel before they even became Christians and won people to Christ. Can you believe it? They, they were convinced of it, but they'd not made the decision and their friends would ask and they'd tell them and the friends had come to Christ before they would. But all they're doing is they're telling them what they know of Christ. And a testimony is very powerful. And so God tells Paul, I just want you to tell people you are going to be my witness and a, and a uh, conveyor of this truth, an ambassador of simply what you have seen and what I'm going to show you. And that's all we have to do is share with people what God has done. And so Jesus says in verse 17 that he's commanding Paul to open their eyes. Now, these next few little phrases and, and things that I'm going to talk about are kind of insulting for some people. And, uh, and they're going to, some people, maybe even someone here might get a little offended. But I'm going to tell you what the Bible says. God appointed Paul for a very strategic purpose. And this was to preach to Gentile and, and Jew alike, meaning it's everybody. And he says, I want you to go to them and open their eyes. What's the assumption when you're given that command? Their eyes aren't opened. They're blind. You know what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 about this? It says the God of this age, a reference to Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. So we're not just dealing with our friends and family and thinking we just need to persuade them. If we just give them the right track and the right order, you know, if we just present it the right way, if we catch them at the right moment, if they're in need at this particular time, Nothing wrong with all of that. However, the bottom line is, is that how do you help the blind see? Some strategy? You know, some particular order of how you deliver the message? The right verse? It's a miraculous thing when someone who's blind can see. 
That's part of Jesus' ministry during his time on earth as he, as he opened the eyes of the blind and it had never been seen before. And, and people were blown away and it was a marker of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And I want to suggest to you that just as miraculous as the physical blind physically seeing is the spiritually blind spiritually seeing. And for that, we need prayer and lots of it. We need to pray, not just try to convince, but we need to pray just like you would if you were praying for someone physically blind. You don't sit there and take them through the 10 steps of, of, of uh, physical new eyesight and say, okay, well, next it says do this. Rub the eye, okay. Uh, you know, spit on the eye, okay. We got that, okay. And uh, now say the certain words and over this way and all that. No, you know, we pray. We pray for healing in the same way we need to be praying. So he says, I'm sending you to open the eyes of those that can't see. And then he says to turn them from darkness to light. Okay, what's the assumption? The world is in the dark. This is so painful for enlightened, uh, an enlightened generation. You, know? you, know, you go around and say, you're, 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 this spiritual darkness is everywhere. You're blind, the world is dark. You're blind and doubly blind because you're blind and in the dark. And you're stumbling. We are not. We are not. We know what we're doing. We've got a plan. You know, we're going to turn this world around. We have hope. You know, and it's all good, nothing wrong with any of that, but I'm saying that what the Bible's uh, diagnosis of us is, is much worse than simply we just need a new president or we need a new governor or we need a new mayor or we need a new whatever. The world has a much more significant problem and it's a spiritual problem. And again, we have to have the eyes that see the heaven and hell aspects of this, of this dilemma. The spiritual realm needs to be opened up to us. We need to be thinking in that direction and not simply what our eyes can perceive. And so it says in Ephesians 6.12, if, if a person's not convinced of the, of the darkness of this world, uh, Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against powers of what? This dark world. You know, I want to share something with you and maybe it'll help uh, all of us, myself included, pry away a little farther away from clinging to this world. Because what the Bible essentially says is that this world is dark and it's going to get darker. And eventually it's going to burn. Now this is not good news in some ways. It's like, can't you preach a cheery sermon? What's wrong with you? People aren't going to come back. They don't want to hear this, this gloomy stuff. But the fact is, is that without the right diagnosis, we won't have the right remedy. And so we need the right diagnosis. The world is not going to get to be a brighter place. It's not going to suddenly improve and become a utopia. The Bible has already told us that it's going to get darker and bleaker and blacker. But in the midst of us, we shine like stars in the universe, shining ever brighter until the full gleam of full day. Isn't that great? This is what the Bible says. And so actually the darkness works in the favor of the believer because we just shine brighter. Our, our, our light becomes more evident in darkness than it does in you know, the shadows. And so God says to Paul, the world is dark and they're blind and they need the gospel. And then the third thing he says to Paul is that I'm commissioning you to turn them from the power of Satan to the power of God. Okay, what's he saying here? The world is under the power of Satan. That's another hard one for an unbeliever to swallow. That's really tough. What are you talking about? You're a nutcase, you know? What do you mean the world is under the power of Satan? 
Well, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter four that when, when, the, when Jesus had his time of temptation in the wilderness for 40 days, at the end of those 40 days, Satan came to him and tempted him. And one of the things he offered is he took him up on a high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I will give all of this to you if you'll simply bow down and worship me. Now, if I were Jesus at that moment, I would have said, <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm the one that owns the world. I'm the one that's in charge of here. Don't even give me that stupid. You might be able to run that by your little demon hordes and by some ignorant people, but you're not going to run that by me. I know what the score is, you know. But you notice he doesn't say that. Why? Because Satan is in charge. Now, he's not sovereign. He's not all-powerful. But in the garden, something besides the innocence of man was given up. The title deed to the earth was surrendered. And until the last days in the book of Revelation, it tells us the lamb, the slain lamb of God will come and finally no one able to open the scroll, which is the title deed to the earth. And the lamb will step forward and take it. And he opens it, (laughs) takes the seals off. And he is the one that has the title deed to the earth. Because right now, because of sin, the world is a black place. And have you ever heard people say, why does God allow all these things to happen? Like they're blaming this on God. This is Satan's doing. What you see in the world is the result of Satan's power, Satan's leadership, Satan's authority. That's what we're suffering under. It's not the leadership or the loving kindness of God Almighty. And so he says they need to be turned from blindness to see, from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to the power of God. These are very essential steps for every Christian uh, to experience And he says the reason for all of these things is so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and so that they can have a place among the sanctified. A place means an inheritance, that they can be in the kingdom of God, heaven or hell, heaven or hell, heaven or hell. The darkness, the blindness, the power of Satan is where hell leads to. And the light of Christ and the gift of God and the light of God and the sight that he gives us and the power of God is what leads to eternal life and to forgiveness of sins. You know, I could almost just preach a message just on these few verses because to open their eyes deals with the whole concept of revelation. To turn them from darkness to light deals with repentance. To turn them from the power of Satan to God deals with redemption. The ability to be forgiven of sins is dealing with remission of our sin. And a place of inheritance among those who are sanctified deals with the riches that God has in store for us. And all of this comes by faith in Christ, which deals with our reliance on God alone. In verse 19, Paul says something remarkable. He declares himself to have been fully obedient to this commission. Fully obedient. Isn't this amazing? I mean, I'm trying to think if there's anything I can say I've been fully obedient to in my whole life. I was very disobedient as a young kid. I was a little rascal kid. You know, I was was never really bad, but I was constantly in trouble. You know, I was always, every report card was, Bobby's a nice boy, but, and this was not, this was the but Bob, you know, not the but God, this was but Bob. And, uh, and then there would be this litany. I mean, it was a page, you know, of all, you know, he's squirreling around all the time, distracting. I hope my boys, they're not in the service, are they? I don't want them to know all these things about me. Okay, so anyway. Uh, but uh, the thing is, is that in, in the midst of his obedience, he's saying, I was fully obedient to this Agrippa. I didn't hold anything back. And I'm thinking to myself, what would drive Paul's obedience? There's certainly a lot of things. Guilt can drive obedience. Fear can drive obedience. But I love what it says in, in Psalm 119.32. 
The psalmist says, I run in the path of your commands for you have set my heart free. Isn't that wonderful? I run in the path of your commands because you have set my heart free. I I don't think there's a more glorious or wonderful or noble reason to obey God than the joy that we experience in walking with him. And one of the things that I, I shared last night, and I've shared it on a few occasions, but I'm in a, I'm in a, in a, in a transition myself as a believer. Um, forget that I'm up here speaking and teaching and all that. As a Christian, I'm experiencing more life in my Christian life than I ever have before. And I can tell you what I think it's all tied to. It's tied to a couple of things. It's, it's tied to just the sovereign work of God that's happening, I think, in our, in our whole church and on this island. I think it's, it's tied to the desire of God and his initiatory effort to change my heart and give me a heart that wants to follow him more and gives you the same heart. But I think it's also tied to our recognition of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're acknowledging his work more and more as a church. We're, we're, we're speaking of him and, and we're recognizing his activity and we're honoring him and we're thanking him and we're praying more. And I think some of these things all together are, are driving us forward. I know they are for me. I know that this whole issue and, and relationship with the Holy Spirit is just huge in terms of the uh, dynamic of the abundant life. And I want to invite you into it. I don't have time to teach on it right now except to just say we have to embrace the filling and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and to accept the fact that God has given us the Holy Spirit as a comforter, as a friend, as a confidant, as the one that comes alongside, the one that the Bible says that we are to have koinonia with and to have fellowship with and to to commune with. We pray to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, but we can acknowledge what the Holy Spirit is doing. We don't have to pretend he's not there. All the divine appointments that you have, all of the times when you have the right word at the right moment, the checks in your heart about sin, the, the conviction of sin, all of these things, they come from the Holy Spirit, but so infrequently are we acknowledging him. There's something powerful that happens in the life of a, of a believer when they begin to acknowledge the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, Paul says, out of the joy of my heart, out of, the, out of the love for God, out of my excitement for the kingdom, I'm running in the path of the commands of God. I want to encourage you that uh, it's, it's, it's very likely in a, in a group this size that there are going to be a number of us that are keeping the commands not because we're running in them and not because we've been set free but because we feel guilty or we're afraid. And I want to share with you that the Christian life is a joyous experience. And if you're not experiencing it, you need to cry out to God And you need to ask him to fill you again. And you need to persist in prayer until God begins to give you your joy again so that you're not just slogging through and just kind of making it as a Christian and getting along as a Christian and just trying to hold on by your fingernails until the second coming of Jesus. I guarantee you God has so much more planned for you. And God's doing something in our midst and I can't can't quantify it. I can't even exactly explain it all. But something's happening. And it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And we need to embrace it and yield ourselves to him and allow him to have his way. But because of that work, Paul was completely obedient. And he preached to the Jews and the Gentiles alike in verse 20 that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. They needed to actually prove something. We don't talk about that much when, we, when we're sharing the gospel with people. We just say, you know, 
You need to believe in Jesus. You need to admit you're a sinner. You need to confess Christ as Lord and uh, ask him to come into your life. And all those things are true. But Paul, in this context, with this group of people, said, and you need to prove this transformation by deeds. Kind of gets at what, what James gets at in his writing. He says, you know, show me your faith and I'll show you my deeds. And he's not contradicting faith by sal- or salvation by faith alone, but he's saying once a person has genuinely come into the kingdom of God, there should be evidence that's visible, tangible, measurable, observable in our lives by other people that we're actually changing. I want to share something with you. If, if you are a Christian here, most of you are today, and claim the name of Christ, my question to you is, are you different than you were a year ago? Do you think differently? Do you have a, a greater passion for the Lord, a greater love for the kingdom and for the body of Christ? Are you serving him more? Or are you doing what you were, the same thing you were doing five years ago or 10 years ago? And you basically are just holding on, believing all the same things. I want to challenge you with Paul's words to Timothy. He said, Timothy, let your progress be evident to all. There needs to be progress in our life. And the way that we make progress in our Christian life is not by you know, buckling down and trying harder, but it's simply by being in the presence of God, allowing our, our hearts to be in union with him. And you know, as we study the Bible, we're opening our heart, we're communing with him as we pray back and respond to him. We're having dialogue and fellowship as the Holy Spirit's working. We're in fellowship with each other, using our gifts. All these things are happening simultaneously in the context of relationship. And suddenly we're not the same people that we were a year ago. I don't want to be the same guy I am now a year from now. You know, there are things that need to change and, and you know that better than I do. A lot of you say, I, you know, I, know you, I know he needs it, you know, and I do need it and we all need it. And so we need to be changing and approving our repentance, the transformation by a lifestyle that's in concert with the work of God. In verse 21, he tells us it was because of all these things that he was teaching that he was seized by the Jews. So the man who was once pursuing Christians to their death is now the one pursued. So he stands in verse 22 and 23 and says that God has been his help and enabled him to stand and testify to small and great alike and affirm what the prophets and Moses said, that Jesus would suffer, that he would rise from the dead, and that he would proclaim light to all people. Verse 24, the response of Agrippa and Festus, but first Festus. Festus is listening to all this and he's just an antagonist and he's a hothead, and he's immoral, and he's unethical. And you know, when you've got a powerful person that has all of these weaknesses in their life, they tend to be very verbal and very explosive and unpredictable. And some of you have worked for people like that. Uh, and so you know what, you know what it's like uh, when you get a really powerful rich person that, that, that doesn't have a good solid foundation of, of moral and ethics. Uh, they can be very explosive and angry and, and demanding. And so Festus is that kind of man. And, it, and he starts accusing Paul of being out of his mind. And the word in the Greek is mania, where we get our word maniac from. And so he's accusing of being a, a, a nutcase, that he's completely lost all sense of reality, that uh, you know, his marbles just fell out on the floor and that's it. And, and Paul is just a complete blathering idiot. And, that, and that's what, uh, what, uh, what Festus is trying to communicate. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, I'm, in, I'm envisioning myself. How would I respond to that? How would you respond when you're accused of being a, a raving maniac? You know, I, I taught on this last night and I was talking about how important it is that we're calm and relaxed and, and uh, most of the time 
Uh, God enables me when I, when I face situations like that because I face those every once in a while. I've been called other things besides maniac. Maniac's not too bad. And, uh, and, and when, I, when those moments come, there's a part of me that, you know, I'm able to control myself, but you know, inside you kind of like are going. I had a dream last night. Uh, and I don't normally share my dreams, but I, I got to tell you this dream. I don't even know. You know how you have the dream and you can't remember the people or the exact conversation? But I had a dream and it was somebody I didn't know, but they were just really violent and ugly to me. And I took it and I took it and I took it. And finally, I just snapped. And I don't know what I told him. And I'm not telling you I didn't, I don't remember, so I don't have to tell you. I really don't remember what I told him. But it wasn't very nice. And I basically just came right back at him, you know. And I said, you know, just I basically, who are you to talk to me like that? You know, and I, and I had this dialogue that was going on in my dream. And I, you know, I, I, in essence, I'm, I'm expressing my sin. I completely failed in my dream. <laughs> the very message I'm teaching on today and what Paul was able to do so beautifully, I completely failed out of all places in my dream. And uh, but it only highlighted the fact I thought to myself as I woke up from that dream, and even in my dream, I thought, I need the power of God to respond to this guy. That's what came to mind. I failed as a human being in my dream to respond appropriately when I was being insulted. And in my dream, I said, I need the power of God. And you know what came to mind? This message. I thought, I'm teaching on this tomorrow. And I couldn't even get through the night, you know, <laughs> without responding in a different way than the Apostle Paul did. But in my dream, I thought, as the dream is kind of going, you know, it's still going on, and I'm, I'm, I'm crying out to God, and I say, God, I, I felt so ashamed and so humbled, and I felt so inadequate, and I realized that anyone in this situation can't rely just on self-control. They need the power of God. And I believe that's what enabled Paul to respond in such a respectful way, because he calls him uh, most excellent Festus. I mean, you know, how do you do that when you're being insulted in that manner? And Paul responded to these accusations by saying, hey, look, what I'm saying is true and reasonable. I'm not out of my mind. These things are not insane. I've heard people say that, that faith is, is a giant leap into darkness. That when you, when you come to church, when Christians come to church, you can't really check your brain at the door, but you can leave it out on the parking pylon somewhere or hang it up on the palm frond. You know, that, that Christians aren't thinking that you have to just, you know, just come on. I, I don't believe all that. You don't have to believe, you know, just believe. Don't, I, but I've got these questions and this question, don't worry about it. Just come in. Uh, nobody really expects you to believe. Yeah, you just have to believe. You, you don't have to understand it all. You don't need to explore it all. I mean, you know, for goodness sakes, we don't even know the answers ourselves. Just come in and get saved, you know? I mean, that's not Christianity. Christianity is, is, is based on empirical evidence. It's based on historical evidence. It's based on tangible logic of what God has done, uh, both historically and spiritually in this world. And everything that God has done can be tested against the scriptures. And, and everything that points to Christ in, in history, in his resurrection, in his miracles, in his teachings, in his ministry, in the transformation of the disciples, in the transformation of millions and billions of people's lives over the millennia, all point to the veracity and the truthfulness and the authenticity of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, Festus, I know you think I'm out of my mind, but these things are based on truth and they're reasonable. But someone that doesn't know God, what's their condition? They're blind, stumbling in the darkness, and under the power of the enemy, and facing one of two destinies, heaven or hell. And so Paul appeals to Agrippa's awareness and his intelligence about these things, Agrippa being very aware, and he basically says to Agrippa, I know you believe in the prophets, don't you? And, and now here's Agrippa. He's on the horns of a dilemma. 
If he says, no, I don't believe, he goes against his heritage because he has a Jewish ancestry. He also goes against all these people from the Sanhedrin who are bringing Paul to charge against these, against these issues. And if he says yes, he knows what's coming yet next is that Paul's gonna say, let's all bow our heads. Uh, Agrippa's gonna pray the sinner's prayer. Pray after me, Agrippa, you know? And so he's in this really awkward spot and he doesn't wanna go there. He's not ready. And so instead, he simply refuses by being indecisive and, uh, and bypasses the gospel. Now, I wanna share something with you that um, just briefly, uh, if you have a King James text, the text says, almost, almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian, which gives the the, uh, the idea that Agrippa was this close and he was just saying, Paul, just push me a little bit more and I'll be in. But that's not really what the text says in the Greek. It's, uh, it's really a note of sarcasm saying, do you really think in such a short time that you're gonna get me to become what you are? Now, why would, why would Agrippa not respond? And I wanna, I wanna just go over this briefly. I think there are probably at least four reasons. One and it's very, very hard to get into the head of a living person, much less the head of a dead person. Uh, but these are my, uh, my musings. I believe that the person on his left, or right, but possibly left, was Bernice. His live-in girlfriend, in essence. His adulterous love affair uh, was with Bernice. And, and, and he just didn't want to give that up. Because he knew if he came to Christ, he was going to have to let go of that. He was a, a man that knew the Bible. He understood God's standard. And so he knew he would have to give that up. There are people that don't come to Christ because of immoral relationships. They just don't want to give that up. And then on the other hand, he had Festus who thought that Paul was an idiot. So what is going to happen if Agrippa suddenly says, you know what, Paul, what you say makes a lot of sense. I think it's time for me to accept the king of kings. And on his, on his right, he's got Festus who was very powerful and had the ear of Caesar and would, would immediately have uh, 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 Agrippa removed from power. And so a lot of people don't come to Christ because they're afraid of what they're going to lose if they come to Christ. And then he's, got, then he's confronted in front of him by another man named Paul, who because of his commitment to Christ is in chains and bonds and is facing the death penalty for slanderous charges that can't be proven. And he's thinking to himself, that's me if I accept Christ. And there's some people that, that will not accept Christ because of fear of walking with God, of what the cost will be. And I want to tell you right up front, if you don't already know, I'm sorry I didn't tell all, the, all of you this last week before you came to Christ, but I'm telling you now that the Bible says that when you come to Christ, your life is over. It's already been done. You don't have to worry about losing your life because that happened on the cross. That already is a done deal. Your life is over and now God has given you his life and it's his life to guide and direct. And, uh, and, and of course, the man or woman that allows that to happen is definitely blessed. But at the end of all of it is unbelief that kept Agrippa out of the kingdom of God. I want to share a quote with you briefly from C.H. Spurgeon. And it's, uh, it's very pointed, very powerful, and potent. So hold on. Alas, how many are influenced by the fear of men? Oh, you cowards! <laughs> Will you be damned out of fear? Will you sooner let your souls perish than show your courage by telling a poor mortal that you defy his scorn? Dare you not follow the right, though all men of the world should call you to be wrong? Oh, you cowards! Cowards! <laughs> These are my words. How you deserve to perish, who have not enough soul to call your souls your own, but cower down before the sneers of fools. Wow. Wow. That's some preaching, isn't it? 
Uh, maybe one week I'll just read his sermon and uh, we'll go through the whole thing. But this is sometimes keeps people out of the kingdom is the fear of what people think. Heaven or hell, heaven or hell, heaven or hell. It's always before us. Well, the story wraps up with uh, Agrippa and Festus conferring and Agrippa saying, you know, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. There's not even a, a, a crime he's committed. We can't even put him in prison, much less put him to death. Too bad, too bad, too bad that he appealed to Caesar, an irrevocable appeal. Otherwise, he would have been set free. You know, sometimes uh, we look at life and we think, too bad made that decision. Too bad I went to that school. Too bad that this event occurred in my life. Too bad I missed that opportunity. But you know, behind it all is the sovereignty of God because even with Paul's life, God had prophesied and predicted on on the day of his salvation on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, 15, that it was God's plan to set him before kings and nations to preach the gospel. It was the Holy Spirit's directive repeatedly in Acts 19 and 23 that Paul should go to Rome. And it was in accordance with Paul's own desire to go to Rome according to uh, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. Nothing is beyond the sovereignty of God, nothing. So as we finish up this chapter, I just want to encourage you that every day, the people that we pass, the people that we are served by and the people that we serve in our vocations and our in our contacts, in our phone calls, in our encounters, are facing this dilemma. If they don't know Christ, the Bible says that they're blind, that they're in the darkness, and they're under the power of Satan. That's a tragedy. That's a travesty. That with all of our strength and with all the prayer that we can muster, we need to do everything that we can to free those that are captive. Heaven or hell stands before this island. Heaven or hell stands before your family. Heaven or hell stands before your co-workers. Heaven or hell stands before all of mankind. And God has given us a message of freedom, a message of hope, a message of transformation. And it all hinges on the beauty of the cross and the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of that resurrection, my dear friends, very soon the Lord is coming. Very soon he's coming for his church. And very soon all of this will be over and you will be rewarded handsomely wonderfully, extravagantly, lavishly for your service. Just before the service, we were looking at Colossians where it says, since Christ is seated in the heavenly realms, set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on things above, not on things of this earth, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. We have a destiny, we have a future, and it's not here until we come back here. But it's in the kingdom of God and God has a great reward waiting for you. Make it count, live it big and allow God to use you this week. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. I pray for those that have received you recently and ask God that you'd strengthen them and give them power and joy. Father, I pray for anyone that doesn't know you this morning that they would talk to someone and that they would, one of the friends that brought them or someone that's, uh, that's near them and just ask, how can I experience this? And it's as simple as asking you into their heart confessing their sin and saying, I want a relationship with God. Come into my heart, make me new, transform me. For the rest of us, Lord, I pray that you would put before us heaven or hell, heaven or hell with every person that we see. And God, it might prompt our hearts to pray, prompt our mouths to speak and prompt our hearts to to have compassion. And God, I pray that you would use us this week to touch the lost and to encourage the weak and to strengthen the church. 
And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.